Hey, what's going on? It's Dr. Mike T. Nelson here, back once again on the Flex Diet Podcast, where we talk about all things to increase muscle performance, improve your body composition, all done in a flexible approach without destroying your health in the process. Today on the program, a good buddy who I've known for a long time is a registered dietitian, Mr. Sean Casey. He is from the neighboring state here behind the Cheddar Curtain we call Wisconsin. And today we're talking all about elite level performance, a little bit more on the nutrition side. Sean trains one of the top badminton athletes in the world, and you may not be super familiar with badminton athletes, or you may not even train many badminton athletes yourself, but a lot of the principles that we talk about can be applied to yourself, even if you're not an elite level athlete, or if you're training high level athletes, or any athletes really of that point. Because even with high level athletics, a lot of times it's just getting really good at some of the more basic items, and then you can get fancier from there. So in this podcast here with Sean, we talk all about everything from electrolytes to making sure you've got the basics of performance covered, what that would look like, what to do the week of or the day of competition. And then we do a little bit deeper dive into different types of supplements. Everything from CoQ10, magnesium, what type of magnesium is best? How do you know how much magnesium to take? Because there's different types, which kind of complicates the issue and a whole lot more. So a lot of deep dive into performance nutrition, even touching on electrolytes and a lot more. And if you are doing pretty good with your nutrition and exercise and sleep, and you're curious about what would be the next level to take your performance or body comp to, check out the Physiologic Flexibility Certification. It will open again September 18th, 2023. It'll be open for one week until September 25th, 2023, go to physiologicflexibility.com for all of the information there. And in the certification, I cover physiologic flexibility, which you can think of as metabolic flexibility. The Flex Diet Cert is the level one. That's where we cover nutrition and sleep and a little bit of exercise. And in the PhysFlex Cert, we expand that to the top four regulators that your body has to hold constant and how to train them. So we're talking about changes in temperature, pH, an expanded version of metabolic flexibility for fuels, and air, CO2 and oxygen. This is everything from cold water immersion to the effects of sauna, a true high intensity interval training all the way to zone two, different breathing techniques, everything from a long exhale, breath holds, superventricular methods such as the Wim Hof method, and a lot more. Now the cool part is it's all done in a complete system for you, so you'll understand the big concepts, you'll learn all the details based on actual research, and then we give you five specific action items so you'll always know exactly how to apply all of the information. So this is the level two of the PhysFlex certification. It opens September 18th, 2023. So go to physiologicflexibility.com for all the information. 
and enjoy this podcast with Sean Casey. Welcome back to Flex Dad. I'm Dr. Mike T. Nelson here today with my longtime good friend, Sean Casey, who's also a registered dietitian and trainer to badminton superstars of the world, correct? <laughs> that would be correct. I've had some good <laughs> opportunities working with pretty high level badminton. If anyone, I was actually, the first time you told me that, I was like, badminton. Nah. And then I went and watched like one of the matches. I was like, holy crap. That's, I couldn't even see the little birdie thing moving around. I'm like, that was crazy. <laughs> it's actually really fascinating because I had the same reactions. One of my main clients I work with, his name is Victor Axelson. Mm-hmm. He's a two-time world champion, Olympic gold medalist. And I remember when he first reached out to me, this would have been back, I don't know, 2014. And it was similar because I think about badminton, it's kind of like the backyard barbecue sport. And then similar to yourself, I started watching. I'm like, holy cow, this is extreme intensity. And here's something that's interesting. So he's about 6'4", 195 pounds. When we're in our intense training, if we're not getting in at least five to 6,000 calories a day, he can't maintain his body weight. Wow. That's got to be like, that's higher than some high-level CrossFit athletes I've worked with. No, it, it's pretty crazy. I think with people, especially in men's singles, so yeah. it's so interesting. You have doubles and singles in badminton. So in doubles, it's just almost like pure reflex. Obviously, they burn through a lot of energy, but it's a lot of just pure reflex. reflex is how quick can you move. Where in singles, you're covering a pretty large court. So there's a lot of jumping, a lot of fast motions. The one thing that actually really surprised me about this, or two things surprised me about the sport is the number of all-out vertical max jumps that they do in a given period is probably the highest I've seen out of any sport, like per time unit, just with the smashes. The other kind of, actually, because every sport has something unique about it, be it American football, international football, basketball, whatever the sport is. The unique thing about badminton is the birdie is so light. We're talking mere ounces. And so as they're flying around, like smashing and the birdie and everything is they have to take into account what the drift is in the stadium. So if people Mm. are walking more in one direction versus the other way, or if there's an air condition on, if if there's no drift in the stadium, you hit the birdie it lands three three inches inside the boundary line if there's a high drift that same shot is now landing three feet outside of the boundary hmm. line so it's like this continuous adjustment going on so yeah so very unique sport i've had some fun experiences with it do they go out there and hang up little tiny flags to see where the like movement air is or do they like walk around with their hands up like trying to figure it out ahead of time or what do they do You'll see a lot of it. What they'll do is basically when they're on the court, they'll, for lack of better words, hit the birdie straight up in the air. Um, and then and just, the uh, yeah, watch for the drift on it. And that's the other thing is they'll see the drift. And that's and then what's always unique is you have to think about is, okay, so it's the best of three. So each set, Ooh, you're side. flipping the sides. Yeah. So your first set, you may be three feet out of bounds with the hit the next set it's complete opposite direction that you're playing against kind of those unique things you don't really realize until you start watching and following the sport a little bit more closely yeah last question on badminton but do they play around with different birdies of different weights in terms of training or does that take away from all the years they've found in or on 
got their fine motor skill to just that one specific thing. So I would imagine like golf and baseball, like the the size and how they're formed is all highly regulated. Yeah. So similar with badminton, they're using the sh- the same birdie weight the entire time period. But for practice, they don't play with like ones that are more weighted or lighter weighted oh, or anything like that. Yep. No, I, I see your question. No, it's they use the same one for the entire practice sessions. They really try to zero in on the exact weight for consistency. Yeah. Nice. Oh, that's super interesting. So now <laughs> people know more about badminton. So in my head, I have this little, I don't know if it's a hierarchy, but it's like tennis, badminton, pickleball. In terms of the <laughs> amount of movement you do. But maybe badminton will be a little bit higher up on the list now. <laughs> yeah, it's moving up. It's so fascinating because badminton versus tennis. So badminton's a much faster sport in terms of there's not as much breaks in between movement or between rallies, between yeah, total. rest periods. It just, it's a very fast, okay, let's get after it, let's go. Where a long badminton match, I would say, is going to be longer than an hour. Say maybe an hour to an hour 15. Where a tennis match can go extremely long duration. Sure. So it's always interesting kind of comparing physical demands of different sports, which energy systems are going to be more predominant, which ones are you going to try to prioritize. Similar to what you do with the different athletes, clients that you work with, trying to match the training, the nutrition, et cetera, relative to the demands of the sport. And as a segue into what we're going to talk about today is kind of supplement, nutritional, drug interactions. I would imagine there's a very high cognitive demand in badminton, especially as matches go on, especially with something that's very more reflexive from a supplement or nutritional standpoint. Do you do anything that you can reveal to the public that would be helpful for that demands of the sport? I think a lot of it in terms of the mental demand that I'm really focused on is similar to athletes from other sports. I think often people forget about like they have daily life stresses just like everyone else does. And so I'm looking at, okay, just general uh, vitamins, minerals, the basics. I find those type of things are missed across the board. I'm also a fan of doing some of the different ones that help with brain health, be it choline sources, everything from city choline or CDP choline. I think alpha GPC has benefits there. I'm also just a fan of things like creatine. I'm a fan of the brain health benefits of creatine. I, I know there's the one study, and again, this was now looked at in high-level athletes, but just the ability of creatine to impede, improve that ability to think quick, like on spot repetitively. Now, in that study, they were using like a serial sevens test, so trying to invoke mm-hmm. that stress, that accuracy, things of that nature. But I, I was thinking like a sporting world, okay, if you have things happening really fast, how can you potentially have a positive impact? And so I would say like specific to Batman, there's not really a specific thing that I use for say that sport versus say if I'm working with the basketball or volleyball or one of those others. But again, just trying to target the entire brain function. And again, I find one of the major things missing is just basic vitamins and minerals. I always tell people if that's off, you know, what, whatever you're trying to throw on top of that is going to cause a lot of, you're going to get half out of it. Yeah, totally agree. And. We've had Dr. Scott Forbes on here. If you want to listen to more about creatine and Dr. Eric Ralston, we talked all about creatine in the brain too. I could, a good buddy of mine was a high level, worked with a lot of tennis pros in the past. And so he would watch to see who their potential opponents would be on TV. And his main determining factor was if it was going to be a quote, easy or hard match was 
if they were just consuming water or if they were using any type of electrolyte solution. Because the tennis matches that they were playing were generally in very hot, humid outdoor settings. And he was telling me, he's, these other people have like high-level coaches and these matches are going on for hours on end and they're only consuming water. And he's like, all we did was <laughs> just give them more electrolyte mix, sometimes whatever you can legally do. But he's like, most of the time, that was enough. And we knew that as the match got longer, it was to his athlete's benefit. And he would just mop the floor with all these other people who skill level wise were probably above where his athlete was, but he just knew that he would he get so excited if they come in and they just had water. He's yes, like, yes, this is going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> I know. You these are like so pro bad. level people. These are like people that are on national TV. <laughs> It's always fascinating when you dive into there is, like you said, the electrolytes, the... So simple. You know, the potassium, sodium, like very basic things. And that's what we do all the time because badminton, there, there's two big areas in the world for badminton. It's Europe as well as Asia, specifically Southeast Asia. So you're Malaysia, Indonesia, China, Japan. And so when we're in those countries, it's the same exact thing is we're loading up on those electrolytes, those things, because... You know, it always goes back to everyone wants to have that big, flashy, even just a, think about it in the gym too, right? the mm -hmm. big flashy pre-workout that is like, pow, wow, like lights, bells, whistles. And it's okay. Like if that has a 2% increase in performance, awesome. I don't know if that's, that's important for the gym, bro. Then great. I totally understand. I love a good caffeine kick as much as anyone, yeah. but going back to the performances, if you just have those basics in place. That's probably going to have a far greater impact on your performance than whatever the next big thing being marketed out there. Yeah. And I'm, I've been guilty of that probably five years ago. I was pretty good, especially with myself and athletes in warmer and humid environments and looking at what the environmental conditions were. But I think I drastically underestimated sodium amounts in people that had a pretty, pretty good diet. Right. So a lot of some of the higher level CrossFit people, we did pretty good on their competition stuff was good, but I think I could have gotten a little bit more performance by bumping up their sodium during training times. When yeah. I went back and looked at some of it, again, it's a self-report a lot of times. Some people were on the low end of two grams, but I've noticed like two to eight grams. I was talking with Danny Gelpin the other day about this too, is two to eight grams total per day seems to be the range. And I've noticed that you've probably seen this too, is that it's just a huge range from one person to the next for God knows whatever reason. And so once I just started being like, okay, your blood pressure is fine. You're eating whole foods. You're not salting your food. Okay, let's just salt your food. Let's use a electrolyte supplement. Granted, I use Element because I'm an affiliate for them. But there's other ones you can use. And let's just keep going up and see how you feel and perform. And then we'll just figure out where your max is. And it was crazy how... Sometimes as simple as just like doubling their sodium intake. They're like, oh yeah, my training's much better. Like I can do more volume and you look at whether it's speed, HRV, whatever, like their consistency was a lot better. And that was not in an extreme environment. That was just in their local gym that they've been training at. I was like, shit, how did I miss that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think everyone is guilty of it as well. Obviously you're familiar with, but for people listening, I'm a registered dietitian. I was, yeah. One of my degrees was in dietetics. My other degree was in exercise physiology. And, you know, dietetic school, so because they're always thinking about, and obviously there's been more research on this since I was back in school, 2006, six seven, 
blood okay it's all low sodium etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's, when i started same issue when i first came into the field it wasn't like i was telling people don't use sodium right but i was emphasizing hey making sure that we're using a variety of minimally processed foods like that health diet which naturally is going to be super low in sodium more often than not and same kind of career tr- learning experience that you had is wow like this was really simple. Yeah. <laughs> enjoy, enjoy salting whatever you're having. Or some of you mentioned element tea. I've had really good success with element tea. I'm not familiar with them in any, any way. So this is me just being honest with experiences. I Using things like that, other electrolytes has been really beneficial for a lot of clients I work with as well. Yeah. And now it's been crazy. Like I have, what I got here? I don't know if people can see it on video. Hopefully I don't unplug my mic, but Nick's sensor. I don't know if you've played with those at all. I just no, started playing neither. with them. And I haven't done too much of it yet because it hasn't been hot here in Minnesota, but we'll be in Costa Rica again in June. It's starting to warm up here now. I don't have a sauna yet, so I don't really sweat a whole lot. So I'm excited to play with that more just to get an idea of measuring different electrolyte amounts. So I do some assessments with Rapid Health, and so they've been doing that with some of their athletes too. So it's pretty cool with technology now. We don't have to guess or do the old school titrate up, titrate down, which still works. You don't need technology, but more and more technology, it's becoming easier to measure specific things and get an idea of what's going on. That is neat. Whenever I think of salt, the one thing I always encourage people to do with salt and this part of mine, we're talking about titrating up, titrating down is the importance of playing around with salt, how it impacts your body, et cetera during your practice sessions, during your training sessions, instead of this, I don't know if you ever run into this with clients you're working with, with different athletes that work with is they'll try something new. They'll get the bug in their ear, say the night before a big event, they'll jump on everyone's favorite Dr. Google and find what performance <laughs> thing it'll be. And so one thing I always tell people is, Hey, make sure whatever you're going to be doing on your match day or whatever you're trying out in the practice session, leading up to make sure your body properly responds to it. And the one story, and this is almost like my own self-stupidity. And this is when, when I was still in organized sports, I remember, and this, well, gosh, would have been 15 years ago. No, because I was in high school. And I remember hearing my physiology 101 class. Oh, like you're going to, if you're sweating a lot, you're losing sodium, hydration. So I got the brilliant idea of taking two, ta- two tablespoons of salt in like Ooh. a huge amount of water two hours before my high school football game, which led to me sprinting in peeing in the cornfield for 45 <laughs> minutes during the entire warm-up period working on the field. So that was it. Whenever I think about sodium in sports, I always go back to that important lesson that I learned as a 17-year-old in high school sports that I've been trying to carry with me. So for those listening, that's one piece of advice that I can share with you as you're playing with the electrolytes is make sure you're testing them during your practice sessions, during whatever. That way you know how your body's going to respond to it before just locking and loading on a competition day. Yeah, that's anything. Like what I tell people, and I'm sure you've had the exact same experiences. With highly high level athletes, like the week of, and especially the night before competition, like to me, like if everything is good, let's just not change anything. It was like physique competitors. Everybody wants this magical peak week thing. It's dude, you're either lean enough or you're not. And those five days before isn't going to make a huge difference, but you could definitely do stuff to really mess it up. And even strongman competitors, CrossFit competitors, powerlifting, whatever. I just spend most of my time just talking them out of the craziest thing that comes up. <laughs> and I get it because I was, I'm guilty of that. It took me years to beat that out of myself too. It's like, you just, I competed in powerlifting, just local stuff. Like I never really ranked or anything like that. I just, 
did it to get the experience. And even just that, knowing I'm not going to place at all, period. I was a wreck like the week before. And I was like the person going, oh, what else should I try? I should, maybe I should try loading more creatine. And I'm like, what am I doing? I'm doing the same thing I tell people not to do. (laughs) (laughs) That's where it's always nice. I always tell people it's nice to have be a coach or somebody you're working with where if you are getting nervous, like the before an event, like always reach out to whoever you're working with. Because sometimes there's so much emotions, there's so much psychology that goes into that week before. And it's, you want it to be so routine where you're not having to think about it. And sometimes you can get nervous, oh crap, should I be doing this? Or maybe here's another competitor talking about, oh, this works really well for me. And so then you're thinking, man, should I be doing this? And it's that whole conundrum. What I always tell people again, this is like literally echoing what you said is, Trying something new the week of an event, the night before event, the day of the event is I was really back to being a basketball player. If you've been shooting free throws for your entire life with your right hand, you're not all sudden on the night before a game or on game day and be like, you know what? I think I'm going to shoot my free throws left-handed because this other person shoots them left-handed. They shoot 95%. (laughs) Yeah, it's, and I think over time, as you get enough practice, that can actually be a benefit. Because to other competitors, and I've seen this at different events, who are very nervous, the person who's not nervous, paradoxically, makes them more nervous. You know what I mean? (laughs) 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 The funniest story was this is my good buddy, Adam Glass, who we have a grip product and I've done how many competitions with him. This one was down in Texas. And then his wife was telling me the story. I wasn't there. And they were doing a medley of, I think, like 10 different events, right? So for grip stuff. They have all these different stations set up. Your goal is to complete the event and move on to the next one. You can never get through this 10 set up medley in the shortest time wins. Then most of the events they have set up in it are relatively difficult. The two funniest things about it was his wife's telling me this story. They're like, all these other competitors were just like super nervous. And they're like, hey, where's Adam? It's his time to go. Oh, he's out back smoking a cigarette. So they go up. They're like, Adam, you have one minute to start the medleys. Okay. Calmly walks up, puts out his cigarette as he's walking up to the thing, goes through, does all of the 10 events in like record time, and then just like walks away. And he said the look on (laughs) other competitors' faces was just like, and previous to this thing, the other thing that was so funny, this is the first time his wife had ever seen him compete. And so Adam's one of the top people in the world, definitely the U.S., especially for body weight. And she comes up to him afterwards and she's, when are the other people going to start trying? <laughs> and he's, they are trying. They just can't do it as well. She's like, oh. <laughs> oh, that's classic. Yeah. Classic stuff. Pretty funny. So what are your, some of your top, I would say, interactions for, we'll sell, t- stay with pharmaceuticals, for example. The one I think that's most commonly known is if someone is on a statin, they should probably ask their doctor about CoQ10, right? Because the statin Mm -hmm. is going to pair the HMG coenzyme reductase pathway, I think. It's basically the same pathway is going to screw up their body's production of CoQ10. If they're on a high dose of statin, odds are they might be low on CoQ10. What are some other interactions just as... A personal trainer, someone who's not even an RD should consider, and obviously this isn't medical advice, but just for FYI to send them back to their doctor to be like, hey, X drug is known to deplete Y. 
if there's not much of a risk, maybe we should supplement more with this, or at least ask your physician what you should do. No, and th this is a really good point, a great segue as we're talking about just the importance of having those baseline nutrients within mm -hmm. the body. And it's something that I find when I'm working with a lot of trainers on the nutrition side, or even some of the athletes, the master athletes or whatever it is. So the CoQ10 is one that comes off that pathway. The other one that comes off that same pathway that others are not familiar with is vitamin K2. Oh yeah, that's and, right. I forgot about that one. Yeah. So vitamin K2 is jumping off that same pathway. And so there actually, there was an interesting study that came out. I think it was in 2021 where they looked at a couple different cohorts. They had a group with advanced cardiovascular disease, ones with more of that early stage cardiovascular disease. And what they actually found was in both groups, the ones that were on the statins that had higher calcification scores. And they also found that they had lower production of vitamin K. Wow. Again, this was just, this was not like a randomized controlled trial. It was just like, hey, here's a snapshot in time. And so what they actually saw in this study was higher levels of calcification. And it makes sense for, and for those who are not familiar, one of the main functions of vitamin K2 is to drive calcium into your bones. That way it's not lying in your soft, soft tissue. And so that is one there. You mentioned the CoQ10. The one of that, this is really interesting. So along with working with a lot of athletes, I also work with a lot of independent pharmacies. And often when I'm talking with people, they're like, oh yeah, I just don't have the energy I used to. I'm getting older, whatever. And then I always have to explain to them like, no, it's not necessary because you're getting older and I may contribute to it, but your body cannot literally produce CoQ10, which is essential for energy production. And so those are two main ones that come off that pathway. Another one that's really interesting, and this is even looking at, say, younger athletes. Most aren't familiar with this, but a lot of your oral contraceptives will deplete your body of essential nutrients as well. So this can be like your B vitamins. Um, and think about in terms of how B vitamins contribute to the energy production pathways for athletes. How do, again, go back to just mental health and wellness, how do B vitamins contribute to the production of a lot of your neurotransmitters? So that is one that I always find pretty fascinating. The other one with the oral contraceptives that I'm always talking about is, one second, your antioxidants, particularly your vitamin E, vitamin C. There's been some research showing that to deplete those levels due to the fact that it can ramp up oxidation within the body. Very cool. And on the CoQ10, do you recommend... CoQ10, there's like the two forms. There's the ubiquinone and ubiquinol. And I've gone you back know, and forth on that over the years. And now I'm just like, I just take the normal CoQ10. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I've gone back and forth five times. <laughs> yeah. That I do. I spent a lot of research time researching those two reading reviews. And my takeaway from the literature is the difference between the two is not going to have a huge effect. I think where the biggest difference is coming is, are you taking CoQ10, which has been solubilized? Because mm -hmm. that's the thing, regardless of your form of CoQ10, it's hard to absorb. It's kind of like magnesium oxide. When a dry powder, magnesium oxide, eh, in terms of the, the absorption. If you have CoQ10, if it's not in a solubilized form, again, dry powder tends not to be absorbed as well, unless it's on, if it's attached to like a cyclodextrin ring, it'll be absorbed at a higher level, but there. And the other thing I was thinking about too is, okay, ubiquinol, ubiquinone, the one just has an extra hydrogen attached to it is when it's going through the stomach, it's going to get, have the acid exposure to it. 
I haven't seen any good research to indicate that when it's a, the form that it's actually absorbed in by the time it crosses across like gut lumen into the body. Right. I think, I think it's already in the ubiquinone form as is. And then once it gets to the body, it's going to be converted into what it needs. And so that's my takeaway on it. I know I've seen some head to head studies. I thought there's some confounding variables in them. I did find one study that showed that again, what I was mentioning where the actual form was not as relevant as much as, Hey, has this been fully solubilized and the liquid medium is going to be absorbed into. What are some forms that you like then? So for people listening, what should they look for on the label or can you suggest any brands or types or anything in that area? The ones that I like specifics, again, I'm usually tell people if I have to make a generalization, if you have a, in a gel cap, if you're in a, like a powder form, if it's attached, if you see in the other ingredients, they'll talk, they'll say like cyclodextrin or something of that nature to indicate that, Hey, it's attached to a carbohydrate or something that's going to enhance absorption, different brands out there. We use a lot of healthcare brands. So either designs for health or the molecular. One of the companies I work for is Evolve Wellness. So we use a form that's higher absorbed. So full disclosure, I do have financial interest with them. Yeah. But I, those are the main things that I'm looking for. One thing I've had different people in the industry tell me, and again, this might be more marketing than actual science, but let's say if you open up the gel cap and like sediments in it, what's probably forms, forms that show it's been, for lack of a better word, that's precipitated out. There's a couple different forms. These are, you know, trademark forms, but it's CoQ Sol. That's one that I've looked at, which just is a solubilized form. There's some different research showing it to enhance absorption versus more of a powder form. And so those that when I'm looking at CoQ10, those are usually the main things that I'm looking at. Again, if it's ubiquinol versus ubiquinone, you know, I, I think is immaterial. I'm looking at more of, okay, is the form that they're using forms that have via trademark forms that have been shown in scientific literature to enhance absorption. Again, looking at, okay, is it a dry powder form? If it isn't a dry powder form, is there that special molecule attached to it to enhance absorption? And would it be useful to take it with a meal to have some fat in the meal also? Would that help absorption? From a theoretical standpoint, I think it will ha help because it the solubility factor enhances it. That being said, th this is always one of those things where I think, man, I feel like there should be a lot of studies that have directly. I can't find a study this. on it. That's what I'm no, asking. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's yeah. where I'm at too. Is man, like this should be an awesome study. Yeah, but I can't find anything on it. And at least intuitively on my mind, from a theoretical standpoint, it you should have it enhanced absorption with it, but. So that's one of those things that I think it's a great theoretical discussion around a good meal <laughs> while having it. At this time, though, I cannot point to any scientific literature that says yes or no on it. Yeah. And really, last question on CoQ10. Do you think it would enhance aerobic performance? Or does it depend if I, you were low and then how do we know if you were low? And that gets into all that testing and a whole bunch of other things down the rabbit hole. <laughs> I think it's down the rabbit hole. It's one of those things that, especially as you look at more higher level athletes, I'm sure you run into the same issue is not too many athletes are look with or really excited. Oh, let's do a muscle biopsy. Let's jam right. it into our thigh pulse and now to measure our pre and post CoQ10 levels on everything. There was, I'm slightly fuzzy on the details, but I remember looking back at the ubiquinol form and I think it was a study that was done in an Olympic prep, kind of like junior level athletes looking at use of ubiquinol. It was a European study 
where if I'm not mistaken, they actually found with the ubiquinol in, I think it was in doses, maybe like 200 milligrams where it actually enhanced VO2, some of those performance outcomes. So again, I think it has benefit. If I'm looking at straight supplementation for athletes, it's probably lower on my hierarchy of supplements that I'd work with. But if somebody has the funds and they're like, hey, I'm looking for that one to 2% potential increased performance, then I think there is a theoretical argument that can be made in its favor. Yeah, I have a aerobic protocol. I haven't disclosed anywhere yet, but I use that and a bunch of other stuff and I'll use it specifically once all their normal bases are covered, they're getting enough calories, their sleep is good, their recovery is good. They're only taking a multivitamin just for cheap insurance, magnesium's fine, blah, blah, blah. And again, like I can't find a super hardcore, like randomized controlled trial of this group got a placebo and this group got only 200 milligrams. We measured VO2 before and after, like yeah. stuff you think that would be rather simple, right? So if anyone's looking for a mm -hmm. master's project, please do this. But <laughs> there was enough other data, mechanistic data and some other stuff where I'm like, it's probably worth it. So I put it all together and I just tried it on a bunch of clients or lab rats and I don't know, they all seem to get better. But again, you can't take that individual and then have them do it without the supplements either, because they're all at different time points. Stages. And could it be placebo? Yeah. I don't know. But it's also cost was not, not stupid expensive. There's not really any downside. So I'm like, yeah, you know, I'd, I've done it myself and with some other people, especially post COVID. And I don't know, it seems to really help. So who knows? And that's the thing, I think, with a lot of supplements, because I always tell people, I think you and I have discussed it before in the past, it's kind of like research leads to research. Yeah. It's at the end of the day, everyone's going to have their own, be it lifestyle, genetic differences, et cetera, which is going to be influencing things. And so it's like the research is kind of like the compass that points you in the general direction. Okay, is there, A, is there either randomized control trials? Is there that theoretical hype potential for it, et cetera? And then the me search is like that GPS that really zeroes it in. And for a lot of these things like CoQ10, it's okay. Is there, I always, I don't, you probably do similar. Like, okay. First off, is there a theoretical potential for it? Yes yep. or no. Okay. If there is that theoretical potential for it, is there any downside to it? Okay. If there's no downside, it could help. And if this is the difference with how you feel performance outcomes, especially if, if you have money riding on the line, then why not do it? If there's yep. no downsides, there's only potential upside. I'm very, if you want to say liberal is the right word, but I'm very like, hey, let's throw everything out the wall. Let's see what works. What doesn't work. Let's test it. Yes, no, indifferent. Okay, then move on from there. Yeah. Last question on this category and we'll move on to the next category. Do you find PQ is helpful? Because that's billed as like the next greatest CoQ10, even though they're not necessarily the same thing. I have seen some of the research on it. I have not used PQ enough with a large group of people to say uh, yes or no, strong one way or the other on it. I've had some people who have used it. They're like, oh, I think it felt like it benefited. Other people said, eh, it didn't do anything for me on there. So I don't have a strong opinion on that one. How about on your side with that? I did include it in the protocol at a higher dose, like 20 megs. And again, seems to help, right? Again, there's no huge high-level athletes, randomized controlled trial on these things, right? So mm -hmm. this is a very similar approach to what you do. Is there any reason this should be beneficial? If there is, what is the downside? Okay, downside shows some money may fly out of your pocketbook. I make $2 million a year. I could give a sh two shits less. <laughs> okay. And it's generally safe, tested, all that stuff. You're not going to get in trouble for it. 
Yeah. Potential upside. Who knows? You're probably not going to get worse from doing it. And I can't find any data showing that it's detrimental. So yeah. give it a shot. And yeah, again, you're always playing with these sort of, the map is always fuzzy. But I think on top of when you're doing everything else, I found that it was beneficial, but how much, to what degree, who knows? Yeah. And here's always the thing too, and you've probably experienced this with athletes that you're working with is, again, it's not like either of us are going to recommend something that like has no theoretical basis, just like off the wall, I don't know, whatever extract for a mouse who, yeah, I think say more boron on there. But if you're working with athletes, because I think with anything that you're taking, there's always going to be that combination of the psychology with the placebo effect. You're going to have the actual physiological effect. And this can sound really weird. I don't know if I'm saying it, but it's like there's synergy with placebo plus physiology that can mm-hmm. work there. And if I'm working with one again, we're not that we're either of us going to recommend something that's fly by the seat of their pants has no theoretical basis. But if you're working with someone who feels like they have the mental edge because they're taking something that their competition is not taking, then that has benefit at a high level. So yeah, if I, you're able to take advantage of both those things, then why not? I think a lot of times higher level athletes, especially the ones that are very dedicated, that's the reason they're hiring you, right? They yeah. want, even if you tell them like, hey man, I've done this in the past. It's been very beneficial for the people I worked with. It's tested, blah, 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 blah. Can I tell you exactly how much more your VO2 max is going to increase by doing this? No, but I think it's worth it. They're like, cool, I'll do it. And for me to try to prevent the kitchen sink mentality all the time, because like you've seen intake forms from some people and it's 117 different supplements and it's okay. Like, bro, you're eating 80 grams of carbs a day. Please go have two sweet potatoes. So you can definitely go (laughs) other extreme. So I like to do stuff in more of a phased approach and try to match things in. Okay. So your VO2 max is very low for your sport or whatever you're doing or just general life. Let's take eight to 12 weeks. Let's work on that. Let's measure it before. Let's measure it after. If we want to throw the kitchen sink of some supplements, some other stuff in at that point, great. But then once we taper off that and we've shown that there's an increase, I'll actually remove those things from them. And then, okay, what's the next thing? And what are the things that may help that particular thing to try to prevent them from, oh, I'm on like 77 supplements a day and I don't know what the hell's going on. That's the nice thing that I love working with athletes on or people who are like actually tracking data. Because at the end of the day, it's okay. Did this work? Did this not work? Here's objective numbers. Yeah. This is when we started X, whatever it is, is that you're trying. Okay. Here's like said, be it something acute. Here's what we saw. Or okay. Over time with X relative to not having X, this is objective numbers of where you ended up at. And then you can make informed decisions. And I think when you're using data, that really helps prevent the kitchen sink type of approach and with everything. Because I see that similar as you is cl- clients come and they have a laundry list of, they're spending 10 times more on their supplements than what they are on their actual food supply. Yeah. Which is a red flag that we always have a discussion on. Yeah. But I always tell people like, hey, if you want to say, hey, what's my personal kitchen sink of things that I'll start a lot of people on? Okay. Vitamin D. Most people are going to be low on, especially you live in Minnesota. I live in Wisconsin. I feel very confident. Here's something that's fascinating though. So I was in Dubai working with a client back in April and with one of the clients I was with over there, 
just looking at vitamin D levels. And mm. so you're thinking about Dubai, you're middle of the summer, like I this bet person. Because I've seen they, people yeah. from that area low. Yeah, exactly. This individual is low. And we'll see that too. So here's something that's fascinating. This is segueing into a little bit more of, this wasn't an athlete group, but I worked with a lot of school districts. Mm. One of the school districts that I worked with, you know, I did education with them about importance of vitamin D, doing testing. So their entire staff did vitamin D testing. It was like roughly at August 28th of this past summer. End of summer, people were supplementing. Any guess what the average score for this group, and there was like 70 people, any guess what their vitamin D score was on average? I bet in U.S. units, it was 25. 23. Everyone is below that 30 on average. The highest anybody was a 38. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, it was like really surprising. And so that... That's why I came back to the last year. Like, hey, that's why we test. We don't guess. Because, you know, everyone on the board, heck, I was no better. I had mine measured last July and I was taking 5,000 of IUs a day. My levels were only at 37, hmm, interesting. Uh, w- which was interesting in a lot of levels. So again, so I kind of segue. I'm going back to the thing. My, if I'm saying, hey, here's a kitchen sink of things. I do feel like the using a general multivitamin. I think, again, like I said, it's that insurance. Ideally, we're getting everything for our diets. We know that's really tough most places. Magnesium is something that works can be really well for people. I always tell people if you have trouble sleeping, headaches, restless legs, anxiety, there's a good chance you're magnesium deficient, which I think the last study that I saw was like 70% of the adult population. I do think like a fish oil is a good catch-all. And then creatine, I'm a huge fan of creatine and a huge fan of taurine. Those are usually, if I'm going to say, hey, here's my kitchen sink to start off with, I like to work with those right off the bat. Awesome. Played around with like high dose magnesium for people that are low. What are your thoughts on that of running a supplement of magnesium at a pretty high dose for a short period of time? I'm a fan of it. I've seen, I've had really good luck working magnesium with people. Everything for migraines. I find with migraines, that is usually one of the first things that I turn to. Migraines are really effective for, from a sleep standpoint. So again, working with athletes is how quick can you recover? You think about all the stresses, A, just normal life, and then B, add on top that the physical demands of it. So I find magnesium helps significantly with sleep. And if you're sleeping better, that literally opens up everything to improve your immune health, your daily stresses, performance. So I've had really good success with magnesium. Again, what I always recommend when I'm talking with people is, hey, make sure you're just staying away from magnesium oxide, unless they have a colonoscopy the next morning, in which case take your high dose magnesium oxide. But if you don't have a colonoscopy, maybe <laughs> grab a citrate or a glycinate or even high dose citrate can do that too. Obviously there's yeah. liquid forms of magnesium citrate that they used to use and still use sometimes to clean you out <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah that is definitely the point the poison is in the dose i would say if i have to one of my favorite forms of magnesium i do really like magnesium malate um, so again you're getting the opposite of magnesium and then you have malate which you know on a theoretical basis going back to the krebs cycle that is one of the intermediates on it right so again I've never seen like a randomized controlled trial on it, but could that potentially have a positive benefit? Theoretically, yes. But I'm not sure if you've seen this, but there's also, if you're kind of looking more at the brain health benefits, there is some research showing good effects with magnesium 3 and 8, 3 and 8 form. This study, 
The study that I would love to see though, and still waiting for it is because we know something like magnesium oxide or a form that can't be absorbed as well. That's obviously not going to have a big effect. What I would love to see is a randomized controlled trial looking at say magnesium mal malate or glycinate. So one of those other amino acid chelate forms versus the magnesium three and eight to see, okay, yes. how much of an effect does the three and eight actually have? If you're using a, if you're comparing it to a form that's actually absorbed. Yeah. Cause I went through all that data about a year ago and it's interesting. There's enough data to be like, yeah, I think it's worth a shot. I'm not saying don't take, it, but from how everyone had been hyping it up for so many years, I was under impressed by the data. Yeah. So again, it's not good or bad. I, some of the trial designs I wish were a little bit different and. Again, I don't think it's negative. I don't think it's bad. And I've had, I've used it. I've had some people have really good results, but in general, I'll tell people if I'm using it for sleep, I'm like, take a pretty high dose for two, three weeks. And if you feel better, cool, keep taking it. We'll titrate your dose down. If you didn't feel anything after three weeks, I usually just have people cycle off and use a, a cheaper form, to be honest. Yeah. And that's the issue with you make uh, the three and eight form is the cost is significantly it's higher. Patent and they enforce the patent too. So Ooh, exactly. And the other thing with the magnesium three and eight is again going back. So I played around with the magnesium three and eight just because okay, sure. is there any benefit? I can't say that I personally notice any difference with that versus the other forms. But what I always go back to is it. We know that magnesium is still crossing the brain even in the different forms. Like I said, the number of people we've seen with migraines who respond extremely well to other forms of magnesium there. So I go back to there. The other thing you have to be aware with magnesium three and eight is that is only at, I want to say an 8% concentration of magnesium. Yeah. It's real low. So versus, yeah. Versus something like magnesium malate, you're at a 20% concentration. So you have to take double, if you're trying to really get the magnesium aspect, you're going to probably have to take higher doses. And I always go back to pill fatigue. Everyone had, I, I don't know about you, but I always find people have, I always find fortified pills is like the cutoff barrier. If you're going to have the people where it's okay, if they're going to willing to take five pills, they'll probably take 35 pills. Yeah. They, they don't care. They don't care. Where yeah, they, they could care less. So that's always the thing too, is it's like the cost benefit analysis. Okay. Are you noticing a huge difference? Yes or no. Two, do you like taking a handful of pills? Yes or no. What's your adherence to it? So. Those are all factors when I'm looking at supplements that always come in my, as it relates to performance, health, and wellness on things. I think some data I'd have to look that magnesium bisglycinate will cross the blood brain barrier. I'd have to double check on that again. I don't remember if that was an animal study. And mm -hmm. you're thinking about pill fatigue. I bought a powdered form of that. So I was going to play around with that as an alternative for migraines and some other stuff. And that shit tastes nasty. Horrible. Oh, <laughs> wickedly bad tasting. That is, and I've tasted a lot of awful raws. I, I that's love, one of them that's uh, pretty bad. That's up there with acetyl L-carnitine raw. <laughs> yeah. Acetyl carnitine has such a, I don't even know if sour is the right word it's like for it. It's like an but, astringent aftertaste that just doesn't go away. <laughs> yeah, that is so rough. I actually think magnesium bisglycinate is worse though. That is, there's ones I've had, oh, that's really bitter, especially your herbs. A lot of those herbs are really yeah. bitter in raw form, but magnesium bisglycinate was the only one that I had, which I'm like, I want to vomit right now, yep. which is weird because have you ever played around with raw, just glycine? 
Oh, that's great. It's almost like a sweet. Yeah. I was just about to say, it's a, you got it's that from here. Peter Rouse years ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I love pure glycine. And here's a little thing that I'll use in this. A, it helps the health benefits of glycine, I think, are well established. But one of the things I like about it is the impact on blood sugar levels. Yeah, very minimal. Very, very minimal on blood sugars. And there's actually some research showing glycine to be beneficial, both acutely as well as on A1C levels like mm. diabetics. And so I've used with, okay, if I'm working with somebody who has high blood sugars or whatever, then okay, add some glycine to actually sweeten whatever you're doing. And so you're kind of getting two for one. You're not going to be negatively jacking up blood sugar levels. It it may have potential benefit on the backside in terms of blood sugar regulation. Very cool. So I'm blanking on, who's the guy that wrote Cracking the Metabolic Code? Do you remember? I couldn't tell you. I recognize the book name, but I couldn't tell you who was the author on that. I'll think of it. It was bugging me. I can't think of it. But that was kind of one of his big deals is he would just hyperload people on magnesium. And he claims he got some pretty good results. I had some strength coach buddies that did some private work with him and they've tried it and gotten pretty good results too. So I've done it a few times on clients. And again, it seems to be beneficial, but like we talked about, what form, how often, there's only so much citrate they can do. And now you're starting to split it up over multiple forms per day. And this compliance definitely can be an issue at that point. Out of curiosity, what are the doses? James Laval, that was his name. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) The light bulb bop. Uh, You remember what the doses were? Jeez, Dr. Mike, no. (laughs) Do you remember the doses? Like I've used so many different forms What I ended up I had this whole spreadsheet at one point of, oh, here's the elemental magnesium form and here's what it's bonded to and here's the amount. And uh-huh. it just got to be like such a freaking nightmare that I just uh-huh. said, okay, here's the deal. At night, take 100% of the RDA recommendation, usually citrate to keep costs down or three and eight if they had monkey mind, had a hard time sleeping. And then I would usually go with just glycinate or biglycinate in caps during the day. And so I would tell them with breakfast, take another 100% of the RDA. With lunch, take another 100% of the RDA. So that way, if they got different brands or, oh, God, I bought biglycinate instead of glycinate, and they could look at the label and what I told them to do, it would still work. Or before I was Uh having these long email exchanges about, why bought this other form and what version is that? And it's just, just a nightmare. So I just did three times the RDA. Yeah, <laughs> that is good. That's probably the highest dose. It's so fascinating too with the glycine because I think it, if you get high enough doses, yeah, and you always go back. If you really want to play with, okay, we'll just ramp it up to the point where you have loose stools and then yeah. back it off a little bit. <laughs> what I always tell people, I'm like, if you really want to test the upper limits, that's always a fun one. It's really interesting. We were talking about some of the, how different medications can deplete the body of nutrients. Yeah. Magnesium is one of those two that, there's different ones. The ones that always fascinate with me is medications that deplete something that naturally regulates it. So if you look at some of your diuretic medications, it'll actually deplete magnesium along with like potassium. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating because both magnesium and potassium are required to naturally regulate blood pressure levels. So by taking the blood pressure medication, you're actually depleting your body of the two nutrients that are essential for maintaining it naturally. So those We're are going to just need another drug then for uh-huh. to counteract the side effects of the other drugs. <laughs> exactly. It was so funny. I literally was reading a research paper and they were talking about diuretics. I was looking at 
where I actually started really diving into it is, okay, you think about, you see this abused all the time and be it physique competitors when they're trying to uh, lean out before stepping on stage or say a weight sport athlete where they start to play around with stuff there and just trying to dry themselves out. And that's where I really started diving more into the diuretics and be like, oh, your muscle, the reason you may be muscle cramping on the stage is because you just wash out a lot of potassium in your body or go back to the electrolytes we are talking about earlier for the performance. And that was the one thing that always caught me off guard. And it's really best because that's what in the pharmacy world are right. You get on a medication and you start having side effects, you get on another medication, has side effects. And all of a sudden you're on this escalated pyramid of medications. And so I was thinking like, okay, maybe you have to be on medication X for whatever reason. If you just take a few nutrients to support whatever that's depleting, then you're good to go. And so that's one of the things that we do a lot. I do a lot of work with people on is, hey, if you're on medication, make sure that you're not depleting your body of essential nutrients. If so, trying to get them higher levels, either through diet or through supplementation. Got it. There's a guy, of course, doing the lawn outside my window right now. But what are some other ones that you would look for potential interactions? Other common interactions that I'll see is if you're doing high dose aspirin, right? I mean, you say high dose, but if you're in like the 800 to 1,000 grams per day aspirin, that'll actually burn through a lot of vitamin C just because of its, and then what they're looking at is at the gut lining, just because it's so hard on the gut lining, you're basically burning through a lot of vitamin C to minimize the damage there. So that's a common one that I'll see with clients I'm working with. The other big one, especially in athletes is if they're on an antibiotic or something. Either A, they got cut on the field, so they're on high-dose antibiotics to try to minimize infections, or they had a surgery, or whatever it is. They had a virus, and or not a virus, but a bacterial strain. And I think most people forget that a lot of your antibiotics are not like, okay, this antibiotics is only going to touch this strain of potential bacterial pathogens. I always tell people an antibiotic is more like an atom bomb as opposed to a sniper. It's going to wipe out a lot of things. So I find that if anyone's on antibiotic, if we can get various probiotics and then be it spore-based probiotics or your lactobacillus, whatever it is, they tend to have a lot less diarrhea and then just feel better as they're going through the process. What are your thoughts about, I know there's some research on antibiotics like Leviquin causing crazy Achilles ruptures and all sorts of interesting potential soft tissue damage at the same time. I have not looked in depth on super in depth on that research. So I'm curious on your thoughts on it. I haven't seen enough to give an intelligent response. Yeah. Most of it right now is just case reports and there's some mechanistic stuff, but that's something I wish I would have known about earlier. So I, if I know an athlete's going to go in and they're probably going to get an antibiotic, I'll tell them ahead of time, Hey, talk to your doc and see if you can get other alternatives to this. If this is the only thing that you need for your particular case. That's up to your doc. A lot of times there's other things they can try first. If that's the thing that you absolutely 100% have to be on, yeah. then it's harder because it's like, God, I don't want to, I don't want to freak them out. So then I'm like, okay, is it in season or off season? If it's off season, okay, let's just pull back your training. Let's just be more conservative until this kind of runs its course, et cetera. If it's in season, I don't know. I always have a hard time with that. I generally will say hey, there's an increased risk here. Just so you know, you can do like some stuff with Keith Barr's work of collagen before exercise training. I do that with a lot of athletes, but you don't want to completely 
freak them out and have them be so worried about that they can't perform. But at the mm-hmm. same point, I want to let them know that there is a risk because I don't want them also coming back at me and being like, didn't tell me about this. <laughs> and, and it's so hard when there's case reports and it's obviously it's not 100% guaranteed that it's going to happen. Some of these could be people that were just not necessarily trained beforehand. It could just be they happen to be on that antibiotic. So it's those things with a lot more gray area in it. Do, what's the theoretical proposed mechanism? Do you recall what that was? I think it has to do with, I think the class is like the, was it fluoroquinones? I think they okay. believe have a side effect of messing up some of the collagen formation and that it okay, appears to show sense. up in bigger tendons that all of a sudden get loaded. But again, like Achilles seal stuff, there's all sorts of crazy literature on there with wacky case reports of, even I even know people who are like, oh, everything was fine. All of a sudden I walked across the street and I blew my Achilles heel. So it's dealing with literature that's still very, all sorts of different theories on that from the, the tendon doesn't remodel as fast as it should to maybe they just weren't prepared for that, mm-hmm. that the tendons, as you become older, become hyper-specialized. And a yeah. lot of times it'll be like a high load thing of, I went to fall and I stopped myself from falling and I blew my Achilles heel or I went to sprint across the street and then it went and mm-hmm. it's a mixed bag of stuff. No, that that's fascinating. That's worthwhile to dive into that. That's the, yeah. It's crazy how everything affects. And here's the weird thing. I literally feel we have, I say experts in gut microbiome and I say experts because they're, they are experts for what is known, but I still feel like so much of the gut microbiome is, yeah, I think we know roughly the equivalent of if I put a dot on a piece of paper, I'm like, I feel like that's what we know about the gut microbiome. And what is still to learn about the gut microbiome is like the size of Chicago. <laughs> like, I feel we're just scratching the surface to fully understand how all those things are interacting, the pathways, you throw one thing off, how does it affect the others? And so, yeah, the microbiome is so fascinating as it relates to health, wellness on so many different levels. Yeah, as a practical tip, I just send people to Dr. Michael Ruscio's office. They've got a lot of really heavy gut stuff. Because I think to your point, obviously super knowledgeable. His staff is great. I've known him for years. He's one of my training clients also. But I don't make any money if you go see him. Tell him I said you. Tell him I said hi. But I think you're left in the area of what is the person's vast clinical experience? Because mm-hmm. the research is, I don't know, it's for yeah. exercise. There's a good podcast we did with my friend, Dr. Sarah Campbell. People can listen to. I feel like the same area with like peptides. Yeah. I don't. I'm not up to date on that. I don't know enough about it. I don't have the time to do it. Even if I could read more of the research, there's just not as much. So you're left with what is that person's knowledge of the research and then their clinical experience. Mm-hmm. I just send them all to Dr. Ryan Green and he sorts them out because he's an expert no. in that area. And, <laughs> and I don't know. <laughs> no, that that is, and I agree with you there because the one, and I don't have any financial ties to them, is a microbiome lab. So I'm looking at the different things, that's what you see too is you'll have companies who are literally throwing like a kitchen sink approach at probiotics. And I always like things like, okay, do you have with the strains you're using clinical endpoints of relevant? And then again, going back to, okay, how are you working then with people who are gut health specialists? So I echo your thoughts on there. The other one, just so I don't forget to mention, is in terms of kind of drug-nutrient interactions. And this is, you'll see all the time, how many people do you know who are on, be it antacids because they have gut rot or oh, yeah. PPIs, yeah, meprazole, 
that is one that I see across the board from everyone, from people in their 20s up to master level athletes. I find that to be real prevalent. The one thing that I always tell people is PPIs, that type of stuff, they should only be used for about two weeks maximum. Yeah. I think that um, was their original FDA approval was two weeks, if I remember right. Yeah. Two weeks. And now most people are on them for years or yeah. they're popping Tums on a daily basis. And I'm like, do you realize, and here's what's fascinating. I was share with people. I'm like, again, using easy analogy. I'm like acid for a lot of things. It's like a better, the saw that chops the nutrients off the food. So you can chop them even further into usable forms your body can absorb. Again, that's close to what they do, but just kind of a good visual. But you always think about things about B12, iron, folates, phosphorus, all these different nutrients where, again, either A, you help people to wean off the eye you use, or you help them to wean off using Tums or whatever they're using to control that. And I usually find a significant increase in performance, or if they have to be on it, okay, let's try to at least get added doses of vitamins and minerals. And generally speaking, I see that to really improve performance a lot for a lot of clients. That's awesome. That's super helpful. Is the website might have been, I think is what it is. I've played around a little bit with it because that's the one, if I'm not recall, you're able to put in the medication yes. and then it'll jump you over to, Hey, here's the research study. Either there's nothing on this. There isn't. I found that to be a nice resource. Yeah, it's super helpful. I got that from my buddy, Dan Gardner. He was talking about that. And I was like, oh, why have I never known about this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so really no, it's a simple thing for for people to do. Hey, hey, the integrated of what the literature is, it doesn't tell you yay or nay, but at least it's one step you can do to try to look to see what's going on. No, I think that's an important thing. And the other thing I always tell people too is, this is something, one of the group of pharmacists I work with is Hometown Pharmacy. We're a group of 70 independent pharmacies in the state of Wisconsin. And I work with a lot of independents on a national level too. And so I, the, a lot of pharmacists now, they're experts in biochemistry. I always tell people, whoever I'm working with, I'm like, hey, here's what I know based off research. But I'm like, this is really important that you're asking your pharmacist if the medic, whatever medication you're on, if it depletes any nutrients, mm -hmm. because that is what I always find is you have to ask the question. Now, the far some pharmacists are, there's a lot of pharmacists still learning about this. Others are like, Hey, they've known it forever. But I always tell people, you make sure whatever medication you're taking specifically ask your pharmacist what potential nutrient interactions it has. And then, like I said, a lot of clients I have, they'll send me their medication. So I'm able to go through each one, just to make sure there is no potential interaction, but that's the thing I was, like said, just to reemphasize is making sure you're asking, does this impact any nutrient levels? Awesome. Thank you so much for all the great info. Where can people find more about you? If you want to be found or taking clients or product stuff, give us the pitch. Okay. The pitch. <laughs> you can find me. My website is caseperformance.com. I'm really active on Facebook. Just my name, Sean Casey. I can share the direct link to my Facebook page. That's probably the quickest way to get in contact with me or with through, like I said, caseperformance.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. That was a really good discussion. And it was great to see you again. I know it's been a while. We've been trying to coordinate schedules with most of us traveling for a bit and you being off in completely different time zones and other parts <laughs> of the world. So this was great. Hey, I appreciate it. I'm glad that not, neither of us had to pull like a 2 a.m. wake up just because the other person's on the other half of the board. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thanks for your time and have a great day. Thank you so much.
Thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. A huge thanks to Sean coming on here and sharing all of his great knowledge with all of us. Make sure to check out his website and everything he has going on. We'll put all of the links below. Now, Sean does a really great job of presenting information that is backed by research, but is also real world and practical from experience. So he does an excellent job of combining those both together. And if you want a combination of research and real world experience, especially on the more advanced side, check out the level two, which is the Physiologic Flexibility Certification. It opens September 18th, 2023 for one week. Go to physiologicflexibility.com for all of the information there. If you have any questions, let me know. If you're listening outside of that time, you can still go there and get onto the waitlist, which will put you onto the daily newsletter list, which is where most of my information and content goes out. So go to physiologicflexibility.com. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate it. If you have time to leave us whatever stars you feel is appropriate and a short review, that goes a long way to helping us with the old algorithms and getting a better distribution of the podcast. Thank you so much, and I will talk to you next week. What do you suppose they call that? A novelty act? I don't know, but it wasn't too bad. Well, that's a novelty. Ah!